Welcome to episode 15 of the Legends Podcast. I am one half of the Legends Podcast here with my co-host, Sam Manheimer. And Sam, we got a major legend on the show today, Daniel Kuniansky. He was a brother in the mid-2000s in Alpha Epsilon Pi, and he helped put on one of the most legendary nights in probably all of A-Pi history, not just Indiana. Uh, he put on a 3-6 Mafia concert in the parking lot of Alpha Epsilon Pi, and that changed the concert game for fraternities across the nation. And it's just really an awesome interview here about how he started his business from that and what that night was like. I could only imagine how much fun that must have been when we were in college in 2017. Cooney actually helped put on a concert that brought Waka Flocka Flame to the API sport court for a very lit and very fun concert. And knowing how much fun that was, I, I can only imagine what 3-6 must have been like because I think they opened it up to a lot more people and there probably wasn't as many uh, regulations and whatnot in place that kind of kept the... Uh, the top on it so yeah and and going off about waka flocka you know he ended up going on tour with him for a while and was his manager and he worked with several other artists and he he talks a lot about that and just like networking within the music career really really an awesome interview yeah i would agree we get into a lot of good depth on the music industry in general as well as his various ventures within that industry and we'll be bringing that interview to you in just a few minutes really excited for that one for all the Chicago peeps out there, it got up to 55 yesterday, which like me, me and Sam were talking about this. Like if you're from a cold weather city and you, you get that 50 day in the middle of like kind of like pre-spring 50 day, it's just like one of the most upbeat days of the year. Yeah, it genuinely hits very different. I remember, I mean, dating back to college when I first got into a cold weather climate, that first warm day is just another another level. Like I would put that on par with days like the first NFL Sunday of the year. I would say the day after Thanksgiving, aka Black Friday, where you can rip into some leftovers. And then March Madness round of 64. I will say though, the downside to the day where it's over 50 after the winter is all of the snow melts. And there's just dog shit everywhere that was once concealed by the snow. It's kind of like the dog shit is accumulated within the strata of the snowpack. And then when it melts, it just gets excavated like a T-Rex fossil. So now there's just dog shit everywhere that you got to navigate. Yeah. And another thing that I've been struggling with the past couple of days as the snow begins to melt. I don't really need to wear boots anymore because like the sidewalks are clear, but like you do have these pockets of water and you have to be very cautious about which shoes you're going to wear when you go out, because if they don't deflect water, like you, you could be in a lot of trouble. It could be a day ruiner if you step in a puddle and you don't have the proper footwear on. Totally. And Ari, I think you actually saw me firsthand do this. You got to bring the athleticism when there's puddles out because either A, you got to trudge through them or B, you got to just broad jump those things. So I went with the broad jump strategy yesterday, but it's high risk, high reward because you land in the middle of that puddle, you're getting splashed, like Shamu, splash zone. Exactly. And you can always, depending on what the snow is, you could go through the snow and it might not damage your shoes, but like you also like want to challenge yourself. You're like, all right. Like, I can make it across this clean. Let's do yeah. it. And it's, 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 it's high risk, high reward, as you said. Yeah. And you don't want to be the guy that's drenched in just soggy puddle water. So no, you don't. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to go through the snow, but definitely a, a set of challenges that uh, I'll take. Yeah. We're, we're, we're in the fourth quarter of winter, according to our solstice. We, you know, we're recording this on uh, February 28th. So we got like, you know, 22 days left of winter. Yeah. Solstice wise, but I, I expect to have some pockets of warm days. I expect to also have some really cold days coming up. And then even when we hit spring, maybe maybe some spring snowfall as well. Yeah. I mean, this isn't a weather podcast, but I will play my Al Roker character for a second here. I did check the weather prior to recording, and I think we're due for like mid 40s for the next week or so. And then next Monday, not this Monday, next Monday, we're looking at 50s. So I'm excited. We're getting into the football numbers. Oh, yeah. I'm all about the football numbers, weather-wise. Well, we do have, uh, I mean, obviously we still have NBA, but we do have baseball coming back soon, which will be at least something to watch, and an outdoor sport. Yeah, I think spring training formally kicked off today. I yeah, believe. 
They've been playing some spring training games. Yeah. I can't really say I'm much of a baseball fan, though, but what I can say that I'm a fan of is Indiana basketball. I received, I wouldn't call it criticism, but some feedback from some listeners that we don't ever cover IU basketball. I would say there's a reason for that, and it's because it's just super depressing to be a Hoosier basketball fan. Our team underachieves like crazy, and at this point, we've lost three straight games and seem like we're in a pretty tough position to be able to make the tournament for the fourth straight year. We haven't we haven't made the tournament since 2016, I don't think. So I guess it's our fifth straight year. Pretty embarrassing. Pretty depressing. I'm not really not much. like I like college basketball. I love the NCAA tournament. I just don't follow it as much as I should. Um, I'm as many know, I'm a huge NBA guy and I follow NBA very closely, but there really hasn't been much Indiana Hoosiers basketball to watch. And I think Archie Miller is going to be gone and I don't know what they're going to do. But at the end of the day, I think when you have a, a team like Indiana, either just program expectations and it should be NCAA tournament bare minimum. And I think when you come in as a new coach, I think you get two years before they start to put the hot seat on you because you you come in, you have your first year, and then you bring in your first full recruiting class. And then you're supposed to be making the tournament. But, yeah, I'm I, I, not going to lie. I haven't watched a lot of Hoosiers basketball this year, and apparently I haven't missed much. Yeah, I would consider you to be very lucky. There's been a lot of overtime games that have kept me up late only to just watch us lose them. And as a central time zone guy, there's just nothing worse than that when you have to stay up past like 11 to watch a sporting event and your team loses because then you're just tired the next day and you're upset. So honestly, I just wouldn't start watching IU basketball at this point because there's not much to see. They have to do something in the Big Ten tournament really now. That's like the only option. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of men who wear red, our guy Tiger last weekend got into a pretty ugly car accident and injured his legs thoughts and prayers going out to him did you watch the tiger documentary by any chance i haven't had a chance to watch it yet my dad told me i need to watch it um it's i it's on my list in my hbo though okay so i i'm I'm talking to you and to any other listeners who haven't seen the documentary phenomenal watch i would say the documentary itself is pretty average I i would give it a b plus well done. Nothing spectacular. But Tiger's story is just, it's as unmatched in pro sports as I think there is. You have this guy who was at the apex of his career for so long, was a generational talent, maybe the greatest ever, had a massive fall from grace through the, the scandal that saw him cheat on his wife with like 30 different women or something crazy like that, only to see him come back from a myriad of injuries and obviously the scandal to win the Masters in 2019 at the age of 40 something. So after that career to see him go through another tragedy like this again, is just so tough. And you just have to hope that he's going to be able to play with his son going forward. So, yeah, I am a very big tiger fan and by no means am I, am I ragging on him? I'm just simply stating facts right now, but he was the best golfer in the world from probably like the mid to late 90s to, to about 2009 when that scandal happened. And when he came back, he didn't win a major until the Masters in 2019, correct? Yeah, he so, won a major. He won one tournament before that. He won one tournament, but not a major, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. And it's still amazing to see how popular he was during that time. Because kind of in a way, it's like if Michael Jordan, well, I mean, Michael Jordan did walk away in the middle of his career, but he came back and then won three titles. But it would be the equivalent of him coming back and like kind of averaging 12 points a game and not really doing much. Because just like in my opinion, at that level of golf, if you're not winning majors or coming close, it's it just kind of like doesn't it doesn't match up for him because of the standard he had set for himself. Yeah. Well, if that I think, makes sense. No, it does. I, I think a lot of the reason why he wasn't competitive for so long was because of injuries. He had a few. Opera- he had a few operations on his back, so it wasn't just the scandal that kind of yeah. sank him. It was a whole bunch of stuff. And it, you should watch the documentary because it goes into that information. But when he won the Masters, he was actually playing at a very high level leading up to that point because he had a back fusion surgery that actually did a lot for him. But that was ultimately, I think. He was playing at that level, but it was really cool to have seen him get to that point. And then to see him actually pull through in the Masters was something crazy. Fun fact about that uh, weekend. 
It was the same weekend that Sarah's sister got married. And I didn't cry at the wedding, but I did cry when Tiger won the Masters. I didn't cry when Tiger won the Masters, but it was pretty awesome. Just go watch the YouTube video of him hugging his son after he wins, and you'll uh, you'll get a little choked up. I promise. I know. I, I remember. I watched the Masters when that happened when he walked off the green and gave his son a hug. Wow, you don't have a soul, I guess. I I just didn't cry. I, there there is one thing they could get me to cry: the ending of "It's a Wonderful Life." Every time, little tear. Interesting. Noted. But yeah. Hopefully Tiger uh, could make a recovery and get back out on the green sometime soon. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, if there's anyone who could do it, it's him. Yeah. Well, I think we can get into the interview like we had talked about earlier. Really fantastic interview with Daniel Kuniansky, a.k.a. Cooney, AEPI, Beta Iota legend. We'll talk through some concerts. We talked through the music industry, walk a flock of flame, everything in between. So without further ado... Here he is, Daniel Kuniansky. All right, we now welcome on a guest I've been trying to get for a pretty long time. Well, we've been trying to get for a very long time. Daniel Kuniansky. I got to be honest with you, man. I, I was talking to you, Dan, and I was trying to get I was like, do you think, you know, he would want to come on? And he's like, mm, probably not. And then I ended up texting you and you're like, let's do it. So here we are. And I'm really happy to have you on. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thank you guys for having me on. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Cooney is an AEPI Beta Iota legend. I think you went to school in the mid 2000s or so. But since then, you've gone on to have a pretty interesting career in a couple different fields, a lot of musical management, and then some other ventures as well. For those of us who aren't as familiar with you, do you mind giving us a quick rundown on who you are and what you do? Yeah, I'm Cooney, is what everybody uh, knows me in the industry as, because no one could ever pronounce my last name. (laughs) Um, But I started off at Indiana in the backyard of uh, our fraternity house. Good old Andy Borans, not really uh, liking what I was doing, but I was a social chair and uh, it allowed me to put on concerts of mass scale during Little 500 at our house. And really no one was doing concerts, but I knew that I could sell tickets during uh, this event. But um, yeah, I've been in the music industry since I graduated in 2009. And in 2009, the economy wasn't very good. So there weren't a lot of jobs available. And um, I just continued doing what I was doing in the music industry and took it back to Atlanta where I'm from. But um, yeah, the reason I I don't go on a lot of podcast interviews or anything like that is because I've kind of liked being a ghost in this business and I'm behind the scenes making things shake. But now is an interesting time for me because right now I am beginning to launch my record label publishing company and continuing with the management side. And uh, a client of mine, uh, Waka Flocka, Waka Flocka Flame, he um, is now a partner of mine and I'm coming for the credit that that I've had for so long that it's owed. That's awesome. Well, we appreciate you coming on and doing our podcast and uh, can't wait to kind of tell the world what you've been up to and then what you have your eyes set on down the line. So when you were at Indiana, you said that not really anybody was having these concerts. Definitely an opportunity that a lot of houses and fraternities have kind of seized on. What kind of let you in on that as something that A, artists would do, and then B, how did you go about getting artists to come perform as somebody who's in college? So funny story. I was still a freshman and being from Atlanta is kind of rare at Indiana. So being from Atlanta, it's really where the big hip hop scene is. And everybody thinks that because I'm from Atlanta, I would know all of the other uh, rappers in Atlanta. But I was pretty well connected just through our community in Atlanta. And so what I decided to do is thought of it as an opportunity to make money. I was a young entrepreneur. I was 18, 19 years old. And I said, hey, you know, all these people are coming. Might as well sell tickets. We have a venue, which is our house. And I was also gunning for the social chair the next year, my sophomore year. So I wanted to be big dog right off the bat. 
and I found Bubba Sparks. <laughs> and he at the time, he had Miss New Booty, which was number three on the charts. And so I sold tickets. How I did that, um, I raised money through the pledges, the rest of uh, half class, fake IDs. Not going to elaborate much more, but they sold the hell out of tickets and IDs so I could fund the first deposit on the show. And once I had enough money to pay Bubba Sparks, I then relied on the rest of uh, ticket sales to pay him when he showed up the other 50%. So that's how I, I first started. And then it was successful. I became social chair. And then the next year as social chair, I wanted to blow it out. And uh, I had 3-6 Mafia right after they won their Oscar. So at my old job, I worked with a couple of guys who were around your age. And th when I told them I was in API, they all were like, oh, three, six mafia. Like, wow. They're like, <laughs> what an event. And, and I've seen uh, videos of it. The line was all the way down Jordan to get in. The backyard yep. was or the parking lot was absolutely packed. Yep. Like, what, what was that like? And like, what did it take to put that on? Because like, like that is legendary. And like kids in the house now still talk about that. So um, another fraternity member, uh, Jonathan Wolf, he was my best friend in the house, smart kid. He was from Memphis and uh, he had a friend named Jake Franklin that was like doing work for three, six. And at the time I was like, Hey Jake, can you get us uh three, six to come? And he was like, yeah, sure. And since we had a successful first concert with Bubba Sparks, I said, all right, let's do it. I mean, the kick, the, the, the flack that we got from the Bloomington community and just everybody around just made it, you know, explode just because there were a lot of people that didn't want the concert to happen. So um, that negative press ended up working in our favor. And I, we didn't even know how many tickets we could really sell. I mean, we kind of knew, but... I, I, we just kept selling and that's why it was so slam packed. I mean, it was three, four times the size of the Bubba Sparks show. What did you wind up paying three, six to come in? And like, what'd you guys make on ticket sales? Let's just say we made a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, I had to stuff it under my mattress, uh, at the fraternity house. Cause I was so scared. I didn't know what to do with that kind of money. It was, and that was that was before yeah. Venmo. That was straight cash. Straight cash. I mean, I, I, there was videos of me just taking in cash, like, and <laughs> it was hard because a lot of the fraternity brothers wanted to bring like a ton of guests, but I was strict. I was like, no, like everybody's got to pay, and every anyone that was selling it for the house, if they didn't sell the tickets, they had to buy the tickets. So everybody was selling them. I've had um you know, some fraternity members that I had sell tickets come up to me later on and say, Hey, I learned more from selling and doing this concert than I did in all of school. Like it's helped me, you know, with the rest of my career. So was there Facebook really at that point at IU? Cause that was like yeah. right around the like, start of that. <laughs> yeah. Facebook was like four or five years old. Uh, yeah. yeah. It was 2007. So it was about, yeah, a couple of years old. Gotcha. But that's, guys, how, that's how we marketed that in the, uh, the newspaper. So did you have any experience, I guess, with like set design or anything like that? Or like, were you guys just sort of flying by the seat of your pants to get like the actual production of it uh, set up? I mean, I was putting fences up by myself. I figured out how to get a stage and a production crew, but we had no idea what we were doing at all. I mean, we were just like flying by the seat of our pants. I mean, how do we get tickets Oh, we got to actually create physical tickets. How do we scan the tickets? Oh, we got to buy a scanner. You know, it was crazy how we did it, but it we came together. We had a kid in the house that did graphic design. Like all the pieces came together and it worked. All right. So obviously you went on, you know, to work in music and you were very good friends with Use Dan and you were you were coming back to the house, which is kind of when I met you and I was there. And you, you start bringing shows to, to A-Pi while we were there. Roscoe Dash and Waka Flocka. What, what was that like coming back to your old fraternity and, and putting on shows? So we'll rewind it real quick. We got kicked off campus yeah. after the 3-6 Mafia show. It wasn't because of that, but I was done with the house. I was a junior at that point. So I, when we were kicked off campus, I brought Wiz Khalifa through. He was a $1,500 act at the time. And then the next year, I did a deal with Sammy and ZBT in that parking lot. 
um, just because I'm an entrepreneur. I didn't care that they were our rivals. And I put Mac Miller, uh, Wiz Khalifa, DJ Unk, and Young Jeezy on that show. And that one did well. So that was 2009. I hadn't been back to Indiana. I mean, it was about six, seven years after when I was with you, Dan. He was my assistant. But coming back to Indiana is always awesome. Putting on shows is what I do. So I had a lot of fun coming back. So you had a lot of experience early on within the music industry. So you said you went straight into that after college as well. How did that manifest? Were you working for somebody at that point or did you start your own thing? Like, I guess, what was that structure like? So while I was in school, all the other fraternities around the country, Arizona, UCLA, Texas, were reaching out via email saying, hey, how'd you do this? So while I was in school, I was booking 3-6 Mafia across the country. So I would miss school and my teachers, I'm like, yo, I'm running a full business right now, putting on concerts around the country and setting it up and doing exactly what I did at Indiana. And so I turned that into a concert promotion company and then a booking company. So it was an easy transition. I'd already been doing it for two years before I came back to Atlanta. And uh, when I came back, we did Big Boy. I mean, we did, you know, a lot of shows. I don't even know how many. And then I had an opportunity to tour manage Gorilla Zoe. So I went on tour for two years tour managing Gorilla Zoe. That was really my first, you know, real job after, you know, the promotion business. I just want to re- rewind real quick about Wiz Khalifa. So I'd seen photos of that show before, and that show was done inside. And as many of us know, Wiz Khalifa likes to smoke a lot. And <laughs> is it true that you guys are putting garbage bags over all the smoke detectors? Yeah, we thought it was a good idea to put them only on the, the smoke detectors downstairs, not realizing that smoke rises. So in the middle of the show, we're kicked off campus. The fire alarms are going off because the upstairs, <laughs> we didn't protect those. The whole house was smoked out. You could, you could smell the weed from the street. And the cops showed up. And then there's a, there's like a fight at another house down the street. They didn't even bother with us. And so Wiz is like, yo, should I continue doing the show? And I was like, yeah, keep going, keep going. So he's performing while the fire alarm is going off. <laughs> That's very on brand for Wiz. Oh, yeah, definitely. He's still uh, like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. So you were on him early. We'll, we'll get to the uh... – tour management just a second but you guys were on Wiz early you guys were on Mac early that's pretty dope like how did you guys kind of have an ear for that how did you guys have the connections there so a guy named Will Will Carlson who was a fraternity brother a year younger went to Taylor Alderdice and uh he knew Wiz but he was really close with Mac Miller and at the time he was Easy Mac in a group called Ill Spoken and uh you know I, I really liked uh Mac's work and um yeah, he made that introduction. And I ended up helping Mac at the very beginning of his career as well. I'd like to think that I was on him early because I like, saw his show back in 2011 when he was doing uh, Blue Slide Park. But you were on him way before that. Yeah, I flew him down when he was 15 to Atlanta right when I graduated. Uh, so 09. But I'd been friends with him since 07. And uh, I had to have his dad come down and my two business partners at the time didn't want to sign didn't want to sign him, so we didn't end up signing him. But I ended up funding like his jukebox mixtape and a couple others, and introduced him to Wiz at that um, concert in 2009 with Jeezy. They'd been recording in Pittsburgh at ID Labs, but they, neither one of them really like knew each other that well. So I made that introduction, and Wiz began to pay attention to Mac. And a few months later, Mac called me. He's like, "Hey, Rostrum, you know, wants to sign me." Like do it. <laughs> Take that wave, bro. Wow. That's really cool. Did you kind of, did you stay in touch with him throughout his whole career? Yeah. Before about every album, he would come over to the place I'm in right now. And um, I've had this place since 2011 now. So um, this is my condo. But uh, yeah, he'd come over and play me the, uh, the album uh, before he released it. And he never got to play me the one that is most recent that dropped, so I'll never listen to it. Wow. Yeah, that's always one that uh, I'm still really not over it. I, I'm sure it's much different for you, too. But I mean, like as just like a young Jewish kid growing up, like that's really just like someone who you kind of like hang your hat on a little bit. 
Oh yeah. So that one, I mean, it, it's, it's tough to even talk about, honestly. It's yeah. sad. I still, I, yeah. He, it was a uh, tough day. He, he always stayed the same and true to himself all the way through. Yeah. Yeah. yeah his his mixtapes though were just something else. Cause he was really on another level so early on in his career, just from a talent perspective, like he had this old school lyricism that like you would think some guy in his like forties would have, who was rapping in like the nineties. Oh yeah. He was There's just a like, little kid. Go look and, up, go look up the ill spoken easy Mac and Beatty. And, um, that was the first one. You can really tell exactly what you're saying. The lyricism was there. And, and the thing I loved about Mac though, was like, not only was he just able to like, was he just like extremely talented, but like, you know, for like a teenager coming up, like his music was just like very relatable, just yeah. like smoking pot, like chasing girls, hanging out with your friends. And like, it was just, I really liked him. And, and it was extremely, extremely sad when, when he passed. And I actually had no idea that you, you worked with him. Yeah. It was, like it was all through uh, Will Callison and uh, his label at the time, East End Empire. Is Will, is Will Callison still in the industry? Um, I don't think he is. Um, he dabbles here and there, but I, I think he's got a big boy job now. <laughs> <laughs> Two of our good friends actually have a podcast, um, where they do music called It Still Slaps, and they had an episode dedicated to Mac, and they had one of my pledge brothers come on for it, who's from Pittsburgh, and they spent like two hours just like talking all these like stories of him in Pittsburgh. Like the kid really just had like such a profound connection on everyone he came in touch with. Yep, he did. A lot of like the guys in the house my age knew you because of Waka, and and you brought Waka to the house, which I I was watching some videos of that show today, and like any Waka entrance to any show is just incredibly <laughs> lit. So, how did you get involved with Waka, and what was that like, kind of working with him and, and touring with him? So I was on tour with Gorilla Zoe, but um, Waka had heard about the college shows that uh, I had. I started the company FratShows.com. I sold it probably four or five years ago now. But um, he was like, dude, you know, I heard about you. We randomly had a mutual friend that introduced us. And it was 2012. So he was like, hey, man, like, come on tour with me. And I'd just gotten off tour with uh, Zoe. And I was like, well, what do you need help with? And he was like, I don't know. So I was like, all right, well, do you have merchandise? He was like, nope. And I was like, good, I'm going to do your merchandise. So I figured out how to do merchandise <laughs> in a week. And I had the entire tour with Brick Squad shirts and hoodies and you name it. And I went on Triple F Life tour. And on the tour bus, I met uh, Southside, 808 Mafia. And um, then I ended up working for him and beginning uh, the foundation of his career as well. But working with Waka... He's one of those guys. He's he's the best guy in the world. Like you know, before the shows, he's real quiet, and all of a sudden, he exudes the energy on stage. All of it. He puts it all on the stage. I mean, it's wild to see. But if you're not turning up in the green room, then you're lame. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta be turning up. Oh yeah, we've destroyed many green rooms with champagne and other things. <laughs> <laughs> so. Can you take us through what the role of a tour manager is? Just because I feel like that's kind of like a, a vague term in a lot of ways, because it could mean a lot of different things, depending on who you're representing and who you're working with. Yeah. So it starts with dealing with the agent and an agent comes in with an offer and we decide whether or not we're going to take the offer or not. Then the promoter comes in and they want to know what kind of equipment we need. I direct them on the equipment, what we need in a, for hospitality, green room, pretty much directing the whole show, figuring out logistics, how to get from point A to point B, hotel rooms, travel, flights, and ground transportation. And then the most important part is picking up the cash. So the agent generally secures the show. We get a 50% deposit. And then when we show up, we get the 50% on the back end. So that's generally... You know, what a tour manager does, make sure that the artist gets to the show and uh, everything is taken care of. Something that a lot of rappers are known for 
is when they, you know, they put on a show and they have a green room, they have a lot of unusual requests. Have you seen any like pretty unusual requests in your time? Outside of just like alcohol, but like, you know. Of course, but we, I keep it very simple and easy. I don't want to give a promoter a hard time because I want the promoter to book us again. And I want them to know that they had, you know, want them to feel as if that they had a good experience with Waka. And he's personable, so he'll talk with just about anybody. Take, I've never seen him turn down a picture. So, you know, I, I want to make sure that the promoters are happy. So I'm not going to ask for anything too crazy. But we want to be taken care of at the end of the day, and he wants to get drunk and, you know. Well, I heard, like, I was going to say, my friend at uh, A-Pi, Arizona State, like, he said Wiz requested, like, a giant bowl of, of red Skittles. And, like, just, like, weird stuff like that that, like, you have to buy a full pack of Skittles and then pick out the red ones and then all that <laughs> stuff. But I, from my interaction that I had with Waka when he came to the house, he's just super, super, super nice guy, and he puts on a hell of a show. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't make anybody go and uh, do that. <laughs> yeah. I can attest to Waka taking a picture with just about anybody because when Waka was at AAPI, I was hammered, obviously, because, like, why wouldn't I be? And I, like, ran across him at, like, four or five separate occasions. I was like, you only take a picture with me. And every time it came out blurry. So and I was like, I got to get another picture with him. I took, like, five pictures with him. And, like, one of them sort of turned out. But he was so nice the whole way. I was like, why is this guy giving me any time? <laughs> Free promotion. Yeah. You yeah. will go and you will post that picture. And guess what? He stays relevant. Yep. Yeah. That's exactly got- what happened. <laughs> I got I got a picture with him. I got it. I got it in one shot. I was like, "Thanks, man." And he just was like, "Squad." <laughs> so, he's, he's, he was he was a really really good dude, and and that was one of the bigger days for our fraternity, even though we were seniors and like we were on our way out. But it was just it was just so hype. Like they all ran on the stage spraying champagne. Like everyone was going nuts. It's 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 good energy, and it must have been just like incredible to just like be on tour with that. Yeah, I mean, I, some of the best times of my life were on, on the road with him. I mean, it's it's been awesome. And then, you know, after you, you turn 30, you're just kind of like, all right, this is a lot of fun, but, you know, let's transition. Let's, let's make some real business moves. And um, he's only a year older than me. So we have transitioned all that partying into real business opportunities. And because he is who he is, you know, everybody comes out of the woodworks on the road, which is one of the perks to it is meeting new people. And there's just been so many people along the way that have come up with ideas and he's given them advice to their company and they've become super successful. And I'm sure if anybody listens to this, they'll be like, yep, he helped me with this. (laughs) Uh, That's just, you know, who he is. People listen to this, believe it or not. Yeah, I, I believe it. <laughs> I never say that, but if anybody's out there that does listen to it yeah. and has been affected by him at yeah. any point in time, they'll, they'll agree. I mean, it, it's there's been countless people, um, and that's what I'm beginning to find really as we continue. He He's now a partner of mine, uh, not just a client, but a partner on, like I said, my record label publishing company and my management company. And so... Post-COVID's been uh, pretty good to me right now. Uh, I think we're still in the middle of COVID. Yeah. I, where <laughs> not are you? in Georgia. Not in Georgia. Not, <laughs> where where uh, are you right now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're in a lockdown, Illinois. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, Georgia's <laughs> wide open. Uh, <laughs> it's been this way for about eight months now. <laughs> a little jealous of that. So... so Let's let's pivot to kind of like your ventures right now. So you're running soundcheck management. Obviously, that's the management side of things. What's the record label like? Because that's that's sort of a different foray for you, given you've kind of had this experience with management in the past, right? Yeah. So after Southside and 808 Mafia managing him, I kind of had enough with the music business and I was meeting athletes on tour back to the touring side. So a couple athletes asked me to manage them. I then figured out how to become an agent. So I got my agent license, NFL agent license. I was one of two agents that didn't have a graduate degree that passed the exam. And I became an agent for five years. Awesome time. I'll get into you know, that if you want to ask me more about that. But um, 
I then came back into music and, and started working for Waka again in 2017 and at the end of 2017. And, um, then in 2019, I felt like, okay, I could take on a few more clients. So I signed uh, Young Bands and uh, helped negotiate his latest label ag distribution agreement. So I began to really like learn the process of distribution and the industry is ever changing right now with technology. So labels are traditional labels are doing distribution deals, which is only they're making money on the music. And a lot of times it's only licensed. So I really got to learn a little bit more about the ins and outs of the industry on the music side. And through that, you know, doing splits with producers to, you know, running the full gamut and helping the distribution and push an artist properly. So with that knowledge, I, during management, I hadn't really had a baby act yet. It's been a long time since you know, Mac Miller, the beginning stages of his career. Can't really say what I did helped him, but I will say that it is fun taking something from nothing and turning it into something great. And we've signed two artists to our management company that I b truly believe in. And the problem was, is that they just didn't have funding behind them. So in order to fund them, managers aren't really supposed to fund uh, artist career. It's really what labels do and in this climate right now nobody's really putting up cash so you kind of have to do it yourself so that's why i decided to start face card records and voyager publishing and put some of my own money and pay it forward and give my guys really good great deals that give them the a real ability to have cash and, and launch their careers but i've only got one client under um, our label currently paid pat from memphis yeah. So, I mean, obviously right now in the COVID era, it, it's hard for a lot of these guys coming up to generate cash because they can't put on any shows. Yeah. So how has that been? And like, what are guys doing to adapt to at least like, you know, get their careers going? Well, there's this new thing called Tiki Taki. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> TikTok. Um, there's a lot of ways to go viral. Everybody's on the internet. Everybody wants to know who the person is that they're buying into and the music's got to be there. So it's a full combination and getting heard to millions and millions of people. You could be the dopest rapper in your city, but it doesn't mean that you got eyes on you and it doesn't mean that people are going to pay attention to you, but you have outlets and ways to do it. It just like the old days, it still takes money to really get yourself out there unless you're doing something, you know, very different or, you know, you just, you just hit the jackpot and that happens. You know, there's a lot of guys that do and, you know, that's dope. Yeah. I have a friend who works in the music industry, specifically in marketing. And a lot of what he does just revolves around kind of generating YouTube video plays and just trying to kind of not game the system, but just play. I know who you're talking about. You he just got to create. <laughs> <laughs> have, you, have you talked to him? No, but uh, I'm good friends with one of the heads of the company and he said that he actually called me while we've been on the phone oh, and he's funny. like, yo, you got to meet blah, blah, blah. Who does marketing? For my Andrew? Company. Yeah. That's awesome. Dude. I was just talking to him actually last week. Um, we were talking about what he does, but yeah. But anyway, <laughs> well, I knew exactly. Cause I knew he was in y'all's class and uh, he was like, yeah, he's good friends with you, Dan. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I love Andrew. He's in my, I, I roomed with him in uh, college. One of my best friends. Great yeah. guy. Anyway. So getting back to what we were saying, so yeah, it's really a matter of being able to kind of play the game of getting views and drawing an audience in via the internet. And then you would just have to assume once touring resumes, yes, you're able to convert these listeners online to in-person ticket sales and whatnot. Yeah. So touring is my bread and butter. This is, that's where I came from. And I partnered with post-COVID or whatever, during COVID um, with a guy named Brandon Denson who runs eclectic artist and he does 300 plus college shows a year so we'll be able to tap into all the college markets and get guys really going that way even just opening if you're opening for i don't know whatever you know artist and you're the small guy on the show it's about stealing fans so you you want to go in there and turn you know as many fans into your own as you can 
and touring and doing live concerts is a great way to do it. We're figuring out ways right now to uh, do it elsewhere. And um, I got a guy that I, I'm working with, Ricky Retro. He's a DJ, but he's a personality. He's a cowboy DJ. He's wild, he, but he's a personality, and people really, you know, feel connected to him and really like what he's got going on. So there's just a lot of different things that you can do to stay relevant even without, you know, touring. But it hasn't been easy. All right. You, you've put on so many shows and you've been to so many fraternities. But what's the one that, like, you just remember as, like, your dopest show? And I know that's a hard question, but is there anyone that, like, comes to mind? It's without – hands down the 3-6 Mafia yeah. show. Just because it was, like, watching a dream become reality. and on a scale that I didn't even think was possible. Yeah. And it was like your first really big one too. Yeah. Yep. That that's without a doubt. Yeah. yeah. Although, you know, I did Red Rocks with a group. That was pretty cool. But like the first one is always the greatest to me. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, a lot of time promotion is uh is like legal gambling. So I didn't know what losing was to hit a home run on my first event. Like I didn't realize till later on was kind of an anomaly. Like it, that just doesn't happen. And it gave me the courage to go and continue, you know, being in the business. If I had taken a huge loss on that one, I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now. We were just talking to a friend of ours who also started a business in college, different industry, but he was just kind of talking to us about how college is such a unique market because you have access to way more people who have the exact same interests as you than you ever will again. Like there's just 20, 30,000 people your age who are going to consume the same shit that you're going to. So like, I feel like having a concert in college is like the perfect way to do it in a way, because you just know that it's going to be a hit. You know, your friends, you know, who's going to come. It's, it's not like, a surefire home run, but you, you know that if you put in the work, you can do it. You nailed it. You really become more of an individual, as you guys know, once you leave college, you're, you're around so many like-minded people while you're in college. And um, yeah, it's, that's why you see all Barstool, Successful, Total Frat Move, all these like blogs that, you know, cater to the college market. You don't really see much of that after you're in college. Like yeah. there's a huge market for it. There's always going to be two because like you get segmented once you get out of school. Like you just have like different interests and everything. When you're in college, it's like your interest is what everyone else is interested in, and it's what everyone's doing that night. So if everyone's going to the concert, you're going to go to the concert. Exactly. You nailed it. <laughs> I gotta so, think of a, I gotta think of a business that markets to college kids now. <laughs> I gotta hey, get to work right after this. Be the conduit to the college kids. You might not even need the business. <laughs> because everybody wants to tap into that 18 to you know 22 year old market every major company yeah so i read i read a book a year or two back by you got in the wu-tang clan and he talked about when they were going on tour like right off the bat like it was like kind of just a crazy market i guess like you'd go to a show and like somebody would hand you a, an envelope full of cash and then sometimes they wouldn't and then you just like beat the shit out of them. Does that ever like happen nowadays or is it not like that anymore? First of all, being a good tour manager, you got to make sure that that doesn't happen. And the people that you're dealing with are legitimate. Like they could advertise you to do a full set, but you only are contracted to do three songs. And the fans are going to get mad if you only do three songs. That's why you got to make sure that the promoter is doing their job properly. Has that situations like that happened? Yes. I've um, taken security and had to uh, shake down some trees to make sure that uh, money fell. <laughs> That's still a thing in the industry then where, where people try to just short you. and even, wow. on the, even on the big scale, it does happen. That's why some of the major acts have like CPAs come on the road and do uh, ad advancing with the, the promoters and make sure that the ticket sales equal the amount of cash coming in. But yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. It happens. And I, walk is a wild one, but I'm not going to go to some of those stories. Yeah. You don't need to name names. <laughs> I was just curious if that was still a thing. I, all right. Oh yeah. Maybe, maybe you remember him, 
But there was this guy like running around Indiana when we were there, like our freshman year. And I think he like ripped Cap a cig off for like 10K or something. I heard he like told him that he was going to get some rapper to Cap a cig and put on a show and they gave him 10K and he just fucking dipped. <laughs> so have you ever seen the movie Janky Promoters? Uh, no, but I'm going to, it sounds like it's up my alley. <laughs> Go watch that movie. But <laughs> I've heard of this happening a lot. A lot of fraternities would give dudes cash. Yeah, I could book you uh, NBA young boy for 30 grand. His rate's probably like a hundred grand. Yeah, I can get him for 30. Just give me the cash up front. Dude shows up, grabs the cash and is never to be heard from again. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's the wild west this business um not very many uh restrictions like there were in the nfl of what you can and cannot do it was just industry standards so i feel like that actually is like the big value in being a manager and having a manager it's just like having somebody who kind of knows the ropes and knows what to look out for in addition to obviously all the logistics but it's just like someone who's going to watch your back at all times yep 100% and has the connections to make uh, things happen. Yeah. It's a game of chess. You want to be playing with the, your full set, not just pawns. For sure. And you're thinking ahead. Yep. So going into your professional sports representative career, can you talk a little bit about that? You mentioned you were coming in contact with a lot of athletes through the shows. How did you kind of manifest that into a business operation? Um, so... I was on tour and I met this kid from LSU, still a good friend of today. And um, he had his last bowl game in Atlanta and he called me right after the game and was like, hey, can you help me interview these 10 agents? They happen to be the 10 biggest agents in the in sports in, or in the NFL. And so I had sat there and listened to their pitches and I was like, I can do this. These guys, this is a joke. And so... I went through the full process of the combine to the draft um, all the way through. And the next year I said, you know what, I'm going to apply and try and uh, get my license. And then once I got certified, I um, had a few different agencies that I was going to potentially join. And there was a guy out of Atlanta named Hadley Englehard and um, Enter Sports Management. They were a pretty big firm. And he had a lot of really good players like DeAndre Hopkins, Robert Mathis. LRB. And uh, so I ended up joining with him and started recruiting the same way I did when I was on the road. You know, I learned how to really sell myself, sell the company and sign guys to the company. So it's very similar to music. It is uh, being an NFL agent is extremely cutthroat. And, and what it like, you know, you talk about like selling yourself, like what would you tell like a young 20 to 22 year old kid who's about to get drafted like you should trust your career with me well i'd keep it real and i knew i had the backbone of hadley behind me and a full firm behind me but i could relate because i was younger and uh i could negotiate you know contracts with these guys but there's not really like uh one way to do it every player is different everybody has someone in their ear from their uh high school coach to their college coach to their strength trainer to uh, their uncle, their brother, their cousin, their mom, their dad. Everybody's in their ear pulling them a different direction a lot of times. And it's about getting in with the kid, getting them to get to know you, and then making sure that the family and everyone else surrounding them also feels comfortable with you and, and your situation. And a lot of times it's you're only as good as your last deal. So having big clients under your roster that could vouch for you definitely really helps. And so also knowing the right people, knowing the coaches and getting to know each university. So when you were an agent, were you directly representing athletes or were you kind of pitching them on the firm? I guess, what was your exact role? No, I was an agent. So okay. I, I developed at first, uh, I would say my first year, I, uh, I was beginning to, you know, learn how to do it and just get the clients over. And then year two and three is when I really did it myself and handled a lot of things by myself. Gotcha. So were you going into the front offices and negotiating deals on behalf of players at that point? No, because I was only handling first year deals, which is the rookie, gotcha. con rookie contracts. So okay. I never really got to handle the second year deals 
during my time. But yeah. Gotcha. So you were you're kind of playing like a salesperson for the firm though at that point because you're you're kind of the face as these guys are coming out. So right. that's super important to be developing those relationships like you mentioned. Right. And you know, the players call at all times. You have to be available and I was always available as a young kid. I could go travel and go anywhere that they needed. Gotcha. And are there rules, I guess, within recruiting athletes into a firm that you have to abide by? Because I know that can be kind of complex as well. Yeah, you have to be certified agent to recruit when I was an agent. Okay. But you, you can you can go onto campuses and talk to people. Oh yeah. Got it. Okay. Yeah. What's yeah. the process like to becoming a certified agent? You have to study the CBA, which is the collective bargaining agreement. You got to know the ins and outs of it. And so once you know that, you go take a test on that. And they generally like to, you have, there's a, the Jay-Z rule. I guess if you have seven plus years of contract negotiation experience, you can have the opportunity to take the test. Most of the people that I took the test with had law degrees, master degrees in sports. I was one of the few that didn't that passed. So did you develop relationships like with the programs that the guys were coming out of and, and how did that go? I did. Uh, it was mostly the players, but that was mostly my boss, Hadley, that had the relationships with the universities and the teams. Gotcha. Do you ever do you ever like sell your connections in music as a way to like sign a client? Be like, oh, like you like Waka Flocka, want to meet them? Sign with me. <laughs> you know it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember yeah. the basketball team was at the concert, and I'm sure that that wasn't unique to Indiana by any means. And obviously, Big Ten school guys going to the league left and right. It was everywhere. Every show that we ever went to, there's an athlete that wants to pull up. The synergy between Every athlete wanting to be a musician, every musician wanting to be an athlete is, holds true. There's just there's just so much synergy between music and sports. I mean, to be honest with you, athletes don't need musicians to do what they do, even to know them. they Athletes should know that musicians want to meet them just as bad. And are, fan, and are fans. They play and the they, games. Oftentimes they rap about them. Oh, yeah. So in addition to the music and NFL agency. You also have a company called C4 Belts. Oh, yeah. This is a little bit of a different venture, it seems like, from the first two that we just mentioned. Can you talk about how you got into that and what it's been like in the e-commerce industry? Yeah, I was just an initial investor and founder of the company. I was, I was young, I was probably 25, and I went through, we had a full team, full partnership. I just threw money at it and put uh, the belts on as many people as I could. And I thought that, yo, if I put it on blah, 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 it's just going to blow up and it's going to be the biggest thing ever. And uh, clicks to actual per purchases uh, is very small. <laughs> yeah. Those are things that I got to realize. There's also fulfillment, dealing with China. These are things that I didn't really handle, but they I yeah, got a brief overview and knowledge of it and i learned how to you know sell products as opposed to selling myself or selling uh one of my clients mm -hmm. you've dipped your hand in many different ventures and, and you're very like well-rounded in just the world of business and being an entrepreneur what's any advice you have for like anyone who is looking to invest in a business or start a business don't be scared to fail you know the thing about me is I throw mud, uh, enough mud against the wall, something's going to stick and follow the money. Make sure that you know where everything is. Make sure that you have really good accounting. And again, just don't be ever afraid to fail or hear the word no. The no word should motivate you more. The haters should motivate you more to prove them wrong. Prove everybody wrong and do it for yourself and what you truly believe in. I can't tell you how many times it's just like <laughs> people have come to me and been like, you know, you're you're not going to do this. And that just that just has fueled my fire. Of all of the kind of endeavors that you've taken on, what's been the hardest to kind of master, I guess, or, or to get a foothold in? Ooh, that's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> um, music, because there's just so many moving parts. There's so many nuances. And that's why I like it so much is because I'm 
ever learning about different things in the music business, publishing, the record side, the marketing side, the show side, the merchandise. I mean, there's just so many a- aspects uh, to to the entire music industry and different rulings on you know, copyright and IP. I mean, it really gets kind of crazy, especially with, you know, our changing internet <laughs> and different platforms to be heard. It's always cool, but difficult to, you know, grasp. I have a question and you could probably help explain this for me, but how badly does Spotify rip off artists? <laughs> no comment. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I don't want to get into the real nitty-gritty of it, but uh, there, it's a platform. It's a way for artists to be heard and make money. Um, there's, And it actually pays all right. Apple Music, I think, pays a little more. Tidal pays a little more than them. But, yeah, it's, it's ever-growing, ever-increasing in revenue. So we'll see what happens and if there's yeah. a better way in the future. Well, it's just, it's just crazy because like it kind of happens so fast where it's like before it was like you had to buy the album on iTunes or you had to buy a CD and then all of a sudden it's like these like, you know, Apple Music, Spotify, and now I guess Amazon Music, like these platforms just like took over and they're like, yeah, we're going to pay you a fraction of the penny for, for like every listen. And ultimately at the end of the day, just like destroyed CDs, like CDs don't exist anymore. And then no one's really buying full albums if you could stream them. Right. Well, some countries, they have like vinyl. Some countries, CDs are still very prevalent. But in the U.S., it's streaming. Yeah. And to be honest, like we'll see more and more companies dump money in advertising and yeah. the, the advertising dollar will continue to grow. We're, we're ruled by the, uh, the algorithms and the advertising dollar is what I'm really getting to know. <laughs> So now that you have a label that you're running in a publishing company, are you beginning to advise artists from a musical perspective in terms of who they want to partner with and then what type of style they would take on? Or do you kind of let artists kind of have the freedom that they, they want and then just focus on the business side? Yep, exactly right. I let uh, my artists pretty much do what they want artistically. My job is to make sure that it, the music gets heard. And that's the most important part for me. I wouldn't have signed them if I didn't believe in the music or didn't want them to go in a certain way. And if they're going in a complete opposite way, you know, might be time to move on. And I don't want to hold anybody to something that they feel that isn't fair. Is that a common issue, I guess, when when artists sign like a record label or on with a label where they'll be controlled? Or is there generally pretty much creative freedom across the board? Depends how much money's on the table. I mean, if a label's putting in millions and millions of dollars to a nothing artist, I mean, it's they're investing it the way that they see it. That's it, it, there's just so many different kind of deals that you see nowadays that you just can't box it. Before we got on here, I was looking at your Instagram and I saw you know you met Quavo. And I met Quavo once. I saw him at a at a, a Pacers game, and I so he was sitting behind me, and I I, I like thought it was I like he just knew it was a rapper because he had the sunglasses on, a ton of chains, and finally I thought it was Future, but I couldn't figure it out. Finally, someone's like, "Oh, it's Quavo from uh, from Migos." So I asked to get a photo with him, and I put my arm around him, and he like muttered something like, "Get your faggot ass hand off me." So so. I just want to say, like, is was he like cooler to you than he was to me? He still no. took the picture, but no, no comment. Sorry, <laughs> 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 Quavo was sitting behind you at the Pacers game. Did I hear that right? Yeah, uh, we in that picture we took we we had a show at University of Georgia. Michael used in put that together, and it ran smoothish, I guess you could say. But I probably, you know, yeah, I don't, no comment. <laughs> well, it, well, I was going to say, you did put the show on. It was probably very, like, late. Everything was, like, very late and far behind and moving kind of slow. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> <laughs> but you did a really good job when yeah. he worked for me in Fratchos. He, he really was on the ball, and he, I know he learned a lot that he 
took to real estate in negotiation to being able to really be a people person. Yeah, that, that kid is one of the most personal people I've ever met. By far. Chronically <laughs> late, but the nicest guy. <laughs> I've never actually known him to be late. That's funny. <laughs> it's not it's, I actually, I wouldn't say that it's late. It's more just, he, he stayed at my place a few times back when I had roommates and we'd be trying to go to a bar or something. And he would be like, getting dressed when we were pre-gaming and just was about 25 <laughs> minutes behind everyone else. Or he like has to like FaceTime some girl <laughs> that like none of us know. And he's like, oh, she's one of my best friends. Like I have to talk to her for 45 minutes. <laughs> that that's sounds a, about right. <laughs> the, the, one thing, the one thing I learned about him though is that if you are like, you need to be somewhere at 11, be like, yo, like we need to be there at 1030 because then he'll show up at 11. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> I do I do that with most of my clients now. It's <laughs> <laughs> a smart move. Uh, yeah. One of the big things is under promise, over deliver. That is my motto with it. And if you can tell someone <laughs> be there at 10 and you know they're coming at 11, yeah, that's <laughs> that's what you got to do. So you had mentioned a little while back that you sold frat shows. Mm -hmm. What was that like? Did you have somebody reach out to you about purchasing or were you actively marketing the company when you sold it? I was ready to get out of the college market at the time. And I began to look around for potential people to take it over. And one of my employees ended up just buying it, partnering up with somebody and buying it from me. Gotcha. Will you work back with them once your artist begin going on tour again though you think yeah if they're still up and running uh, absolutely there's another big concert company beat gig who is a rival to eclectic in that space and we'll still do shows with anybody it doesn't matter gotcha how uh how does frat shows doing after you sold it how they yeah. i honestly <laughs> don't know you know, I wish them the best, and I would love to work with them in the future. Post-COVID, let's see what happens, and let's hope that they can really continue to have a full force that they had, you know, when I left, and continue, you know, some of the momentum. We talk about post-COVID quite a bit. Within the industry, what are general sentiments about when that's going to come back and what it's going to look like when it does? I heard that we were coming back around now. Uh, back in June. But the truth of the matter is uh, uh, the end of this year, but mostly 2022 is when we'll see shows. But I'm striking now. I'm putting holds on dates. I'm not letting COVID affect my ability to do business. And to be frank, Atlanta's wide open while other cities like LA aren't. And people are on their hands saying, what do I do? What do I do? Well, I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm striking. I'm getting holds on dates. And if those holds don't work, then we push them back and I'll get other holds on venues as well because I want to be in a position to strike for my clients. Yeah, it's, I saw that weekend just came out with his 2022 tour and I was like, damn, that's so damn far from now. I know. <laughs> but Walker did a show at University of Texas a month ago. I had our client Mads, the DJ chick. She's uh, she's really beginning to get a lot of steam. She did a show two weeks ago in Miami at the SLS, and Ricky Retro, our DJ, did a show here in Atlanta two weeks ago, three weeks ago. So, I mean, we're we're getting shows here and there of states and cities that are open and are allowing shows, but for the most part, it's sparing. I mean, Waka did 120 shows in 2018 and probably close to 100 in 2019. Uh, and the only reason those 20 shows didn't happen was because we were filming for, a, uh, for his TV show. Are there any good up-and-coming rappers that you're working with right now that I need to keep an eye out for? Slug, dollar sign L-U-G-G. He is part of 808 Mafia. He's awesome, semi-conscious, but like real heady. He's the neighborhood dope man. He's got a great uh, industry buzz. It's more of a passion project for me because I am such a fan of his music and everybody I show ends up becoming a fan of him. And then the other artist is Paid Pat from Memphis. He is street and he's, he brings it. Like The guy is going to be a star. And I'm working with a couple producers, Chase the Money, 
and we are beginning to really get a lot of he's Grammy nominated and putting more plaques on the wall. So watch out for his uh, placements that we have upcoming. That's awesome. Well, we'll definitely keep an eye out for those artists. We'll uh, keep an eye out for you, even though you said you're a little bit behind the scenes. Looking forward to uh, seeing what the publishing and record and, and management companies are going to do in the future. I really appreciate you guys for having me. And uh, I, let's let's get it. I'm excited for the future. I'm coming out of the shadows now. Truly a, truly a self-made legend. Thank you so much for coming on our show. We really appreciate it, Cooney. Appreciate you guys. Thank you. Take it easy.